Welcome to Propel, a podcast by Fellowship Pacific to propel you and your ministry forward in the mission God has for you. I'm your host, Jessica Powell, and in today's episode, I had the chance to sit down with Barton Preeb, lead pastor of Central Baptist Church in Victoria, to talk about his new book, Adopted by God, Discover the Life-Transforming Joy of a Neglected Truth. You're going to get to listen in as Barton talks about why the doctrine of adoption is such an important one for us, why he says it's been a neglected truth in the church, and how there is life-transforming joy to be found when we truly embrace our identities as sons and daughters of God. He also shares how understanding and teaching this doctrine can be incredibly helpful for us as church leaders who are trying to help navigate our churches through controversies, such as the ones many of us are dealing with now during COVID. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Barton Breeb. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am here with Barton Preep, who is the lead pastor of Central Baptist Church in Victoria. He is also a member of our Fellowship Pacific Regional Board, and he's the author of multiple books. Uh, but for our conversation today, we're talking about his brand new book called Adopted by God, which is just released this month. Um, and we're going to be talking all about that. I'm very much looking forward to it. But uh, first, Barton, Welcome. How are you Thank doing? Thank you, Jessica. This is good times. Yeah. This is your second time on our podcast, actually, isn't it? Wow. Wow, had... what a privilege. So obviously, <laughs> obviously you did well enough the first time. We're like, all right, we'll have you back. Uh, you guys are <laughs> so kind. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. I, I kind of gave a quick introduction there. Anything else you want to tell us about yourself? Um, well, I don't know. I got four kids. I'm living life in Victoria, trying to be a pastor in COVID. That's always a great journey with all kinds of difficulties and challenges and joys and encouragements and discouragements and so on and so forth. Yep. It is certainly an adventure. (laughs) All our other ministry leaders and pastors. That's right. What a time. What a time. Continuing to travel in the unknown. That's for sure. Um, so you just released your new book. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, So again, the full title of the book is Adopted by God, Discover the Life-Transforming Joy of a Neglected Truth. And it's available Mm -hmm. now on Amazon. Is that right? Available now. We'll make sure there's a link to that in our show notes. Everyone can go get it. Um, So I had the chance to read it and I I really enjoyed it. So I've been looking forward to talking with you about it. Um, To start off, could you just give us maybe that big picture idea of why this book? Like, why do you think the doctrine of adoption is so important? Yeah, great. Uh, I think just initially, it's something that most Christians, ministry leaders, and even pastors, I think everyone's kind of heard about the basic concept of it. But I think if you're anything like I was, or uh, most people I've talked to, people only have a basic understanding. Um, but it's so important, I think, because it really can resonate with people's hearts. It, it really, It's such a highly relational uh, way to understand salvation. It's not all that controversial, which is nice for once in our world. Uh, it speaks to our deepest needs to be loved and to belong. Um, so yeah, I think it, it just really resonates deeply when people start to go deeper into it. That's why it's important. I think it's also important though, um, because as we're going to get into a little bit, I think it, it really has been neglected. And so to discover it, for many of us, it's almost like discovering something for the first time. We, we didn't even know that this was so glorious. I uh, didn't know there was a deeper meaning to it. Um, I think a lot of people probably would say, well, I, I know adoption's in the Bible, but it's it's not in there a lot. It's maybe just a passing idea in the New Testament. Um, but what I want to show in the book, and uh, we'll get into this a little bit, I think, today, is it's much broader than people think. Uh, It's actually an entire way to understand the gospel. It's a whole way to understand the entire big story of the Bible uh, from beginning all the way to the end, how to live as a Christian. In other words, it's not just a small thing. It's not just a passing idea um, that is interesting. It's something much deeper. Then probably even most importantly is uh, the way that it can uh, help us to speak to very practical issues in, in life that we face as believers. Uh, so issues of identity, uh, assurance of God's love for us, how do we relate to God? Probably one of the more surprising ones that people may not think about adoption uh, in terms of would be finding hope to face suffering. Uh, this is one of Paul's dominant ideas to do with the whole idea of adoption. It's a There's a future orientation to adoption, not just that we're adopted in the present that gives us hope to face suffering. Uh, talks about how we fight sin. That's about adoption. And here's a fun one. Maybe we can track a little later. 
it gives us a vision for the church as a family. And that changes everything. And that has actually helped us at Central to navigate the controversies of COVID. Not that they've made it easy, but uh, <laughs> I think it has helped us to navigate it um, in, in ways that, yeah, have been very helpful for us. So I think as evangelicals in the big picture, we have placed historically great emphasis on justification and on regeneration, that you must be born again. That's really important. But what I'm trying to help us as evangelicals see in us as Fellowship Baptists is I think adoption needs to be right up there uh, with justification and regeneration. So I really, I'm on a mission to reclaim the importance of what I would view historically as a neglected truth and something that can have great power in our lives. So that's just some flyover high level kind of thoughts on it. Yeah, but even at a high level, like you can see the the weight of this doctrine, which, you know, even as I was reading the book, it, it was um, a similar thing. Like I found myself asking, why have we not spent more time talking about this? This is so important. So, I mean, you said that, that about this neglected truth, and it's right there in the subtitle as well, um, calling it a neglected truth. So you already kind of talked a little bit about that, but um, could you say a little, mo- a little more about what, like, why you say that, and and what do you think it is? Why do we so easily focus on things like justification and these other doctrines as opposed sure. to this? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me set it up maybe with a bit of a story how I came to understand this because it was out of personal frustration actually that uh, I started down this path. Uh, actually, joy and frustration is where it came out of. So, okay, th- this book actually the seed of this book all began uh, way back in 2007, uh, and I had just a profound uh, and personal experience with the doctrine of adoption. Uh, my wife and I, and uh, we had two kids at the time. We were camping in Vernon. Uh, I was out for a run. I was doing a long run and I was running around the campground doing loops, uh, this giant campground. And I was listening to a sermon about how God adopts us into his family through Christ. So it was a sermon on the doctrine of adoption. And I mean, I was a pastor. I already had a BA and an MA in Christian studies and things like that. So it's not that I wasn't aware of this, but I think my understanding was only very basic. Uh, I knew that God loved me. Of course, I knew that. But if I was being really honest, I think I was a little more aware of how much I fail him than I was Mm -hmm. of his love for me. And without even realizing it, I think I kind of lived with this underlying insecurity about what God really thought about me. You know what I mean? Uh, But then during this sermon, as I was listening to it, the preacher just demonstrated that the doctrine of adoption has the power to release believers from that insecurity because it declares that through Christ, God has not only freed us from slavery, He's granted us the full legal status as his own sons and daughters. So it follows then that if we're God's, uh, if we're God's sons and daughters, his love and his favor are not based at all on what we do or on what we fail to do. They're based on our status as his cherished sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. So as I'm listening to this sermon, this is just, it's starting to go deeper and deeper into my heart. I'm grasping some new things. And the only way I can describe it is it's one of the most powerful encounters I've ever had with God in my life. But later on, I, I would come to understand it, I think, as Romans 8, 16, it was the spirit bearing witness with my spirit that I truly am a child of God. And, and it was such a powerful experience. I literally had to stop running. And I just stood there in the middle of the campground, tears of joy flowing down my face. I think I was putting my hands in the air, <laughs> just <laughs> praising God that uh, he would adopt me, that I could have this unbelievably exalted status as his mm. own cherished son within his family and a lot of other things that kind of come with that. So it, re- it, it healed my heart. It set me free. And uh, that experience has just changed. It literally changed the course of my life, which we can get into. And, and mm. one thing it changed was it led my wife and I to adopt uh, a son. We already had three biological children. Yeah. It led us to adopt our son, Joshua, uh, from China and it led to all kinds of other things. So now to get to your question, that was the story. Yeah. After that experience of 2007, I wanted to learn everything I could about this doctrine of adoption because like you were mentioning, I was like, how do I not know about this? I have a BA, I have an MA, I'm a pastor. I'm the son of a pastor. How I could talk for hours about justification and regeneration. I know all the debates. I could go on forever about these things. How do I know so little about about this whole idea of adoption? But then much to my disappointment and my frustration, I could hardly find anything written on the subject. Uh, there's some scholarly works. There's some good chapters within books like J.I. Packer's famous chapter in Knowing God. Um, 
I took out like the systematic theologies on my shelf, the big doctrine books, you know, uh, some of the older ones like Burkhoff, it's a 700 page systematic theology text, pretty st still a standard text to this day. Burkhoff in 700 pages gives adoption half a page. Uh, wow. Charles Hodge, another older one, he's got three volumes, 2200 pages. He gives adoption a paragraph. Some of the newer systematics did a little better job, would give a couple pages to it. But I could not find like one book that dealt with the subject. And so then one of the, where this led me was I decided I'm going to do my doctoral dissertation on the Apostle Paul's doctrine of adoption. So you see how this experience in 2007 just like launched me, right? Yeah. So I did my doctoral research on it. And what I, the long and the short of it is, uh, I discovered that it's been a neglected subject in the history of the church. And it's been just overshadowed by other great salvation metaphors that I would never want to downplay, like justification mm -hmm. and regeneration. And uh, particularly as evangelicals, those are our things. Look at our statement of faith, for instance, the Fellowship Pacific polls articles on both of those, justification and regeneration. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things I did in my dissertation was I documented the history of this neglect um, by looking at the creeds and the confessions of history. Uh, those, we call them statements of faith now. And, and to our knowledge, adoption does not come up in any statement of faith until the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1647. Uh, then what I did was I started looking at uh, Canadian evangelical statements of faith. So I went to the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and uh, there's 32 evangelical groups. Basically, every major evangelical denomination in Canada is a part of it. And I researched every single one of their statements of faith, looking for adoption, children of God, this kind of imagery. It was astounding to me. Uh, basically, like 22 of the 32 say nothing. Uh, another five do a quick passing mention, really only about five do any decent job at it. And it's actually the Mennonites to do the best job at it. Uh, uh, it and our Are you allowed to say that? Is, <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, I got Mennonite blood, so I guess I can say there it. There you um, go. But let, let's, I'll be, I'll be really honest here. So Fellowship Pacific Statement of Faith, one of the worst. Oh, dear. So, so here, let me put it to you this you're way. Like, you're on our say, board, so you can say that. I know, I'm on our board. I'll, I'll, maybe one day we'll fix this. Yeah. Uh, our, st our Fellowship Pacific Statement of Faith, aside from one reference to God as Father, has absolutely no family imagery in it. Hmm. Think through the New Testament. Think of the Apostle John. We're not talking about John today. We're talking about Paul. But think of John and all his references to children of God. Think of adoption. References to God as Father. Uh, brothers and sisters. The church is the family of God. Adoption. Inheritance. Heirs. These are all family terms. Our statement of faith has none of that in it. Um, hmm. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I sometimes wonder when I look at the era in which it was written, it can come across a little cold. Uh, and I just think that family imagery warms everything up and it's highly relational. So yeah. uh, we could go on for a long time about that. But in other words, I looked at the statements of faith, the confessions, the creeds. I looked at books, literature, and I also even looked at songs, the history of hymnody and uh, songs. Long and the short of it is uh, largely neglected throughout the history of the Christian church, has a resurgence happening today. Hmm. Um, and so what, what kind of became a burning passion in me was, I think Christians are missing out on the life transforming joy that can come from this doctrine. Hence, everything I've done in the last 10 years. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a journey. And thank goodness for it. Thank God for it. Because yeah. Uh, yeah. what a blessing to the rest of us. So with with all that, because as, as you just explained, it's quite neglected and, and you're right. And most of us just have this kind of basic understanding. Um, can quickly, I know there's, it's a big doctrine, but just for, for those listening, could you give kind of a quick definition of like, what do, what do we need to understand about adoption? Yeah, maybe. Maybe we should take it from just a few different angles. I mean, this is the entire book, so it's hard to kind of do here. But if we could do like kind of eight or 10 minutes or something, we could break it down into some parts. And I could maybe, okay. we, could, we could kind of whet our appetites. Maybe that's what we could do. Does that right? sound good? And then everybody can go get the book and read it. Sure, sure. Let's do yeah. that. <laughs> um, at a very basic level, uh, there is only one author in the Bible who uses the term adoption, and that's the Apostle Paul. And he uses mm -hmm. it five times. It's the Greek word huiothesia, which means to place as a son. Uh, I, we can't get into this now, but I would argue that only the Apostle Paul um, even used the concept of adoption, not just the word, but even the concept. Um, so that's a very basic starter point. Building on that just a little bit, you know, Christians, as Christians, as pastors, as preachers, teachers, 
we often emphasize what God saves us from. So mm-hmm. he saves us from sin, from judgment, from death, from condemnation, from the wrath of God and from hell. And of course, that's truly good news. And yet the good news is not only that God saves us from all these awful things, but that he also saves us to something, namely to adoption in his family. So this is where this truth becomes so glorious because God does not just set us free from slavery and then, you know, leave us to ourselves. Uh, That'd be great if you just kind of set us free. That's wonderful. Um, But the good news goes even farther than that, that he also adopts us and brings us home to the warmth and the comfort of his family. So I, I find that tremendously powerful because even when you look through history, um, let's just say in stories or maybe actual history, you know, you find these stories of kings who might free slaves and you go, what, a, what an act of grace that a king would do that. Yeah. But who's ever heard of a story where a former slave is then made to be a prince and to share in the inheritance of the king's vast fortune? And that kind of thing is only in fairy tales, right? Right. <laughs> but but it- I think the good, the good news of the Bible is that that fairy tale has come true in Jesus Christ. So what does adoption mean? At a basic level, really, it's an act of God's grace, uh, whereby he places those whom he redeems from slavery to sin into his family, and he grants us all the rights, all the privileges, and all the responsibilities of a son or a daughter of God. So I think that's kind of the basic ground level stuff, and probably most people would say, okay, yeah, I get that, I get that. Maybe what would be helpful for us is if we just contrasted it with justification and regeneration, just to show how it's distinct from those. Do you want to track okay. that for a moment? Yeah, let's do that. Justificate, uh, let's, let's start with justification. Adoption is different from justification and it's similar to justification. Here's okay. the way to think of it, is that both of them are legal terms, but they refer to different kinds of legal proceedings. So mm-hmm. justification is probably the one we're most familiar with. It's a legal term that pictures us as in the criminal court. Yeah, we're the guilty criminals, um, but through faith in Jesus Christ, God the judge pardons us. Uh, for breaking his law, and he credits us with Jesus's perfect life so that we're justified. So that's a glorious truth, of course, that through Christ we're justified before God the judge, because then we can shout as we do in Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious truth. Amen. Adoption is also a legal term, but it doesn't picture us so much in the criminal court. It pictures us in the civil court. Before we arrived in court, though, uh, we were slaves to sin. That's how Paul always contrasts. It's always adoption and slavery. It's actually not adoption and orphans. It's adoption and slavery. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in love, God sent his son into the world to redeem us, which means to rescue us from slavery. And once he's rescued us out of slavery, he doesn't, again, he doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He brings us into the civil court where God the Father legally adopts us into his family. So why that's so great, of course, is then that through Christ, we're not only justified so that we can say there's no condemnation, that's great, but we're also adopted by the Father so that we can declare, I am a daughter of God, or I am a son of God. So it's similar, but it's different. Yeah, I know that was, that was something as I was, you know, kind of reading that I realized I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about before that if we, you know, he could have just set us free and how different mm-hmm. that would be if yes. we were just set free on our own. But then to have that added brought into the family through an actual legal declaration mm-hmm. of this is now my, you know, I am now his daughter. Um, I had, I had never separated that. So I appreciate yeah. that comparison. Good, good. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, it would be a good news if he just set us free. That's, yeah, that's pretty great. Right. And, and that is true. But uh, yeah, how much more, right? How much more? Okay, so yeah. next one. Yeah, so regeneration. This this is one that's really helpful because I think we, we often mistake our categories here. Adoption is also different from but similar to regeneration. By regeneration, we refer to the idea that God grants us spiritual life to spiritually dead sinners. So Jesus' most mm-hmm. famous words, you know, we must be born again. That's what we mean by regeneration. Yeah. And the image there is of spiritual birth. Uh, So the Holy Spirit causes us to be spiritually born into God's family so that we're spiritually alive and we share God's spiritual nature. So regeneration is very similar to adoption because it speaks about believers as the children of God who have God as their father. That's why they're so similar. And of course, it's the Apostle John who writes the most about this, about being born into God's family. But what I want to argue is that we can't, we should not confuse John's teaching on spiritual birth with Paul's teaching on adoption. So here's, here's a way to think of the difference between the two things. You can look at my family. 
I have two sons. Uh, Tyler is my son through birth. Joshua is my son through adoption. So they're both my sons, but they became my sons in different ways. So to say that Tyler is my biological son, when, when we use that language, we're emphasizing the fact that I gave Tyler life and that he shares my nature, right? That's what we emphasize when we say that. Yeah. So also, biblically speaking, God grants us the new birth through the spirit that we might share in his spiritual life and in his nature. But Joshua is equally my son. But his adoption mm -hmm. emphasizes something just really different than Tyler's birth. Adoption emphasizes the fact that Joshua has been rescued out of his old life as an orphan, and he's been granted a new legal status as my son. And that's the way Paul uses it. He uses adoption to teach us that God has rescued us out of our old life, not just in, as orphans, it's way worse, out of slavery. And he's granted us a new legal status as his sons and daughters. So that's the distinction between John's teaching on the new birth and Paul's teaching on adoption. So the one more thing. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just a question. So in that sense, you're saying we, we essentially are both in one because we're both the uh, biological, almost in the spiritual birth sense and yeah. brought in through adoption. But, but we have to look at both ways in order to fully grasp the, yeah, the way I sometimes say it is think of salvation, like a diamond with many facets. And what we do with salvation is we just rotate the diamond and look at another facet. Justification is a facet. You should look mm -hmm. long and hard into it because it's glorious. Turn it and look at regeneration. That teaches you something very important. But what I'm trying to get here is adoption is different than all those things. And it can give you things that regeneration does not have and justification does not have. Uh, yeah. Because it just is a different facet of the diamond, right? Hmm. So one more thing. Let me throw one more thing on why I think this is we could go deeper. We, we can't get into this one because it's the book. But Paul uses adoption to tell the big story of the Bible. And this was new to me. I think it will be new to almost everyone who reads the book. Uh, every single time Paul talks about adoption, without exception, he does so in order to focus his readers' thoughts on one period of time within the Bible's larger timeline, uh, what we call the redemptive story of the Bible. And, and Paul's always wanting to say, okay, I want to bring up adoption because I want to talk about a specific period of time and how I want you to understand that period of time. To change the metaphor, if we're saying he's telling the big story of the Bible, I would say he tells that story in five chapters. And those chapters begin before creation. So that's Ephesians chapter one, before the foundation of the world, he chose us for adoption through, his, through Christ uh, as sons to himself. So before creation, the story begins, and then it goes all through time. The cross, of course, is at the center, and it goes all the way to the new creation, where Romans 8 says we are heirs, and we will receive an, inher an inheritance that is so glorious and so great, it can't even be compared with the sufferings of this present time. So this is the part I think will be new for a lot of people, and it will bring a lot of depth, is that you, Paul, intends for us to understand the entire Bible story through the lens of adoption. And when you kind of go into that in that depth, just the whole Bible can come alive to you in a new way again. So hopefully maybe that's some basic ideas and maybe just scratching the surface and going a little deeper as to what uh, adoption is all about. Yeah, but that's good. No, that's, that's really helpful. And then, you know, I know probably, I know I'm like this and probably many of our listeners are too. We love to learn things, but more than just knowing this, as you said, it's got this ability to transform life. Uh, what was, what was the subtitle? of um the, the life, life transforming, transforming joy, joy. Yeah, yeah. yeah the joy yeah, yeah. so couple a couple things there like what is what is it about this that is so yeah. transforming yeah and this is where the book is really trying to go it's not meant to be a theology textbook that's not what the book is mm -hmm. it's meant to be a life transformational book because that's the way i think paul uses uh, the whole idea of adoption so yeah. the book is intended to tackle a whole pile of very practical areas i try to fill with illustrations and stories to help bring the point home to people um but we may let's just pick on pick pick one of them a big one um and that would be the whole issue of identity uh, identity is the, you know, the core of who we are. What makes you to be you? Where do you get your sense of self-worth from? What makes you to be you kind of idea, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's a particularly important one for us as ministry leaders and as pastors, since that's most of our audience, I think probably listening to the Propel podcast. We, are, of course, are always, we talk about this a lot, but we're always in danger of basing our self-worth and our identity on our ministries. Uh, and particularly yeah. 
if we're going to be honest, how successful we feel we are in our ministries. This can go much broader. It could be our identity in our careers, our ability to parent, how good we are at, I don't know, music or sports or school or whatever, but just for the sake of our discussion on ministry. But of course, if we try to, if we build our identity on our success within ministry, we're, we're in big trouble. And I think all of us, I think all of us have to go through this. I don't know. I did anyway. As much as I might not want to say I did that, especially early on. And to this day, I still have to constantly check this. Where, where is my identity truly based on? And if we base it on our perceived success within ministry, we're going to be crushed mm-hmm. because we're going to fail. And if our, our self-worth is wrapped up in succeeding and our identity is, we're going to be totally crushed by it. Not only that, one of the biggest ones will be unable to handle criticism because criticism, and I don't know yeah. you friends out there, but good grief, the amount of criticism I'm getting during COVID, I get just endless. And I, I'm, I'm struggling with it. And when I'm going to get all this criticism, I sit there and go, okay, got to go back to identity issues because I can't handle criticism if I'm placing my identity in who I am as a pastor, because mm-hmm. there's just so much of it nowadays. And if it, if that's where my identity is, isn't a pastor, I'm just going to, I'm going to fall apart. Right. Yep. Not only that, I think we'll be insecure because we'll never actually know if we're doing enough. If that, if our yeah. identity, how can you ever tell? I mean, at least the guy who builds a house can know when his house is done and he can say, I did a good job. You're never done in ministry. Like uh, if, if your identity never. is there, you'll, yeah, you'll never know if you're, you're done enough. So therefore your identity will never be secure. And even when you are successful, you think you're being successful. You're not going to be able to rest because you'll always have to work to maintain that sense of self-worth. So let me pull out one of the great preachers on this, shall I? This great preacher yeah. is Madonna. Oh, Madonna. All so, right. Oh, yeah. She's one preach, of the great preach preachers. Preach away, Madonna. Culture. Yeah, <laughs> she is. She is by far one of the preachers of our culture. But she gave a really interesting interview once where she shared about her own struggles with identity and yeah. translate this kind of stuff just into, uh, you know, our uh, our, our role as ministry leaders and pastors. So I'll, I'll read you a quote from her. Here's what she said. She said, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. Hmm, how much of that is in our, our pastoral ministry. That's somewhat ministry relatable. Leadership. Yeah. And then she goes on and she says, and that's always pushing me, pushing me because here's the big line. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. So you can hear in that she, she is not doing well in that moment. I don't know where she's at since she gave this one, but she's just, she's got an impoverished identity because it's built upon achievements and trying to maintain being somebody. Now, Contrast that with adoption. Adoption is not something you have to earn Hmm. because adoption is something that is given. Adoption is not something that has to be achieved. You got to work at it. It's something that you just receive. So as an illustration, our son, Joshua, he's, uh, we adopted him from China. He didn't call us from China and say, all right, uh, uh, Barton and Heather, I propose that if I live in your home for a probationary period of time, if I can be a good little boy then I'll earn the right for you to love me. And maybe one day you could adopt me as your son. <laughs> like we didn't get that call. Yeah. And that would be impossible for him to do. To the contrary, no, we chose him. We adopted him. His identity as our son has nothing to do with his achievements. Nothing. His identity as our son is not earned. It's given. In the same way, we don't have to achieve before God in order to be somebody. Because here's the glorious news of adoption. In Christ, we already are somebody. You and I are already the, the daughter of God and the son of God with a little S, not a capital S, little S. Yeah. I mean, what greater identity can you have than that? So when we root ourselves in that identity, now we, can, we, we have a secure identity. We can handle criticism better. Uh, we're not having to strive to prove ourselves, uh, all those kind of things that we talked about earlier. So adoption really hits on that identity topic, as it does with many others. But there's at least one really practical mm. area that we can we can take from it. Yeah, and what a practical area, especially for, as you said, for ministry leaders. I mean, you read that 
quote from Madonna, which, I mean, it's good that your identity is secure so you can handle criticism because, you know, you'll probably get criticism for using Madonna. But um, <laughs> it's, <Good one. laughs> I mean, you know, I just, you feel tired just thinking about that. But the reality is that is, you know, I hear that so much from, from pastors. I've, I've experienced that in my own life, just that constant drive. But to know that even if the whole ministry fails and falls apart, nothing changes with who you are and your identity Mm. in God. Um, and then that, I mean, that ties in also to something you said earlier, which I was like, we have to go back to because, uh, along with that identity piece and people getting criticism right now, because yes, I think every single pastor is getting letter upon letter with criticisms about COVID <laughs> either probably, uh, at the same time from different people wanting different things that are in complete yeah. opposition to each other. So there's a no win or it feels like there's a no win situation. Um, but you said that, uh, using this doctrine of adoption has even practical implications in terms of leading the church through this. So I'm pretty sure everyone would like to know more about that. (laughs) I'm not going to say it solved everything, but uh, I think it it has helped us probably helps that I preach through these, um, basically the the book preach through that uh, a little while ago now, but our, because of who I am, our church is pretty steeped in adoption in the last few years. Yes. Uh, so that's, that's been helpful. So I can quickly appeal to it without a lot of explanation. Hmm. Um, but I'll, I'll set it within the larger context. Uh, when, when Paul speaks about adoption, he always, and again, without exception, uses corporate language. He never says just like individual terms. In other words, he doesn't want us to just think of adoption only as I'm adopted. He always wants to think of it in a corporate church sense. It's always us and we language. He never just uses I language. And so then that's kind of interesting because when I, when I, before I started my dissertation, if you would ask me, what's the dominant metaphor for the church in the new Testament? Like what's the main way we should think of the church? I think I actually would have answered the body Hmm. because Paul talks a lot about the church as the body the body of Christ. Uh, I think that's how I would answer it. And I was really surprised to start reading scholars who were saying, no, it's actually Paul's dominant metaphor is the family. Hmm. Not that these things are opposed to one another, but the dominant, his dominant metaphor is actually the family. The household of faith is sometimes where our translations talk about it. And, and my first reaction was, wait a minute, I know enough of the New Testament and Paul's writings to know he does talk about the household of faith, but he doesn't braze it that many times. But then these scholars pushed back and they said, yeah, but there's a whole collection of terms that go uh, with the family of God. So God as father <laughs> being the biggest one, uh, uh, adoption, sons, child, heirs, inheritance. And here's one of the biggest brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think my whole life reading the New Testament, I've glossed over that phrase, brethren in the old King James uh, or brothers and sisters or brother. I, I just it, it's almost Christianese to me that I just went right by it. I was shocked when I read Paul. Paul uses brothers and sisters 139 times in his letters. It is by far his favorite way of referring to other Christians, which reveals the strong consciousness he and his readers had of the local church as a family. We treat each other as family. So where this comes to COVID is, I cannot win, as you just said, I cannot win on any of these debates about COVID. And it's from both sides, whether it's anti-vaxxers or it's people who think that we should go way stronger than anything the government ever says. I cannot win. And the controversies, we were doing pretty well for a long time at Central. And then, I don't know, this fourth phase announcement, I think everyone just lost their minds. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had lots of controversy. People leaving the church. People are coming to the church too. But I, I think I'm probably just the same as every other pastor I talk to. It's just difficult. So where, where I've been trying to approach this is saying, look, we need to think of higher principles here. Uh, And the highest principle that I want to talk about is our unity as the family of God, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our father. Christ is our elder brother. We are brothers and sisters. Families have problems. Families (laughs) have disagreements. Families even have fights with one another. But if we follow the New Testament, families stick it out together. They don't quit on each other. They don't allow arguments to get so out of control Uh, that they end up yelling at each other or hating or leaving one another. They're committed over the long term. They don't quit on each other. They stick it out and they work it out. Um, So kind of appealing to that family imagery 
that the higher principle here is our we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So how does that impact then how we work through all the controversies of COVID? We might not agree mm-hmm. at all, but surely that should go higher. It should be bigger. It, 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 it's the higher principle amongst the entire thing. So we've been saying that a lot, speaking that a lot, and it, it resonates yep. with people. Uh, I think okay. people get it. And it puts the COVID controversies at least on a lower level. So they're not so ginormous and all consuming for us. So I don't know, mm. maybe uh, it's working a little bit. Others can it's try working it. working a little bit. <laughs> Tell me how it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we were talking, actually talking about this earlier today, but just how easily we become fixated on the issues, um, whether it's COVID or there, you know, there've been goodness, a number, how many, too many issues to count through the history of the church that we, sure. you know, fight over. And it's easy to divide based on that. But when you, the, the difference that comes, and as you said, in the shift, when you look at someone and say, I'm committed to you as my family. So mm-hmm. we're going to work this out somehow in that we can still love each other and be in relationship and be serving God together and worshiping God together, even though we may not ever agree on list it masks, all the things vaccines. Well, it's even like Paul says in Ephesians four, right? Where we don't work for the unity of the church. We are to maintain the unity we already have in the spirit. Mm. It's the same thing with the family. We are already family. That's the question is not up for grabs here. The question is, are we maintaining the unity of the family that we already are with one another? Is our brother right. sisterhood with one another? Are we demonstrating that uh, what we already are? It's not something we're trying to work towards. We already are that. The question yeah. is just, are you living it, right? And unity doesn't have to mean agreeing sure. on everything. No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I think sometimes people get lost in that too, because then it's, well, you're you're on this other side, so you're breaking unity. Mm. that's that's not the point the unity yes is in there in ourselves as family have you had yep. anybody uh kind of shift perspective that you've seen happen in your church it's more just the ethos that uh, i'm trying to create in the church and so i'm mm. pleased when i hear people echoing that kind of language and yeah. trying to work it out i mean ironically I'd, you know family leave the church sent me a nasty email and they left because apparently I prayed for a vaccine like a year and a half ago. And that felt like it was too much. And I'm forcing it down people's throats because I prayed for it. And then oh. I ended the letter with, we're praying that this will not break the unity. Or the, it won't further divide us. And I was like, mm. Oh man. So again, with Paul, you want to talk about unity. It's not our giant unity in Christ as in the cross with Russian believers and believers in Kenya. That's true. But for yeah. Paul, that unity is how it works out in the people you are in church with. It's not hmm. your Russian brothers who you know don't know. It's the church in Ephesus is to maintain the unity with one another. The church in Rome is to maintain. That's where you work it out, right? Yeah. Well, we keep praying for that unity and and keep preaching it. That's that's good. Um. So so moving. From, from that, uh, the church experiences family, one of the things that I really loved in, in how you wrote this book was how you wove your own personal family story through it. And, you know, you've referenced it a few times already um, in how you, uh, the journey of adopting your son. Um, but it was just, it's just so beautiful. And, and there were multiple times in the book where um, it just made this doctrine come alive the way that you talked about yeah, it. Could you, could you maybe share a little bit about how that's connected to your understanding? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So after that campground experience uh, and getting into the doctrine of adoption, I just started to see parallels between God's adoption of us through Christ and adopting children. It's not actually a one-to-one. Um, we probably don't have the time to unpack it here, but it's not a one-to-one as much as people think doctrine uh, adoption in the first century was quite different than how we do it now. Um, but there are many parallels between the biblical idea of God adopting us and adopting children. So it started to be like, wow, every time someone adopts a child, it's really like a small picture of what God does in adopting us. And it just really captured my heart a lot. Um, and at the same time, my wife and I were just really talking through how do we take seriously this call to care for the poor? What does that look like aside from writing checks? Um, how can we get more involved in that? So those kind of two things kind of came together for us hmm. and began that process. Um, 
you want me to track a couple of those parallels or how much time do we have? Yeah, sure. I, I could, yeah, okay. I'll try to do them pretty fast, but I'll <laughs> give you four, four quick parallels. First of all, uh, God's adoption of us and adopting children, they're planned. They're not mm. happenstance. So Ephesians 1 uh, talks about before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for the universe he was going to create. And that plan involved adopting, choosing people whom he would adopt as his own sons and daughters to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, so what I talk about in the book is that adoption was God's plan A. I steal that from John Piper, actually. It's plan A for the universe. It's not like, you know, Adam and Eve sinned and then, oh, oh we got to kick in plan B and send Jesus to save everybody. If you read Ephesians 1, it's pretty clear Christ was, well, Christ is crucified in a sense before the foundation of the world. What Peter talks about is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was the plan from the beginning uh, to adopt us as his own sons and daughters. And the same when you adopt children, it's a planned thing. Uh, it does, it's not like they just fall from heaven into your house or something, right? Yeah. Um, so it was never our plan A to adopt children in our family. I don't think it's most people's plans, but what I try to always encourage people, it's not just if you're unable to have biological children, maybe God's plan A for your family is to have biological kids and to adopt kids. Hmm. If you are unable to have biological kids, this can be a really life-saving doctrine for a lot of people. So a lot of people feel like, oh, our, our whole plan for our life is ruined. If God's plan A for the universe involves adoption, maybe his plan A for your family is adoption as well. So who knows? Hmm. So that'd be his first thing. Adoption is planned. The second thing would be that uh, adoption always arises out of a terrible situation. So biblically speaking, it's not like God looked down through the corridors of time. He thought, well, what a lot of well-behaved people. I think I'm going to adopt them. They burned it. Uh, that's not what it is, right? <laughs> we, we were the sinners. We were his enemies. We were the ones enslaved to sin. So we were in a terrible condition uh, and he adopted us. And of course, I don't need to track this here, but the stories of the they estimate around 150 million orphans around the world today, the kind of situations that they find themselves in. They're truly terrible. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't, I didn't tell Josh's story in the book just because we feel like Josh can tell his own story one day if he'd like to, um, but it's not good. Like wherever these children mm -hmm. are coming from, uh, they're tragic situations. And the real point here is they are unable to help themselves. We were unable to help ourselves with God. We can't do anything about our situation. Someone must come from outside. God must come from outside to rescue us. Same with children. They're unable to rescue or help themselves. Someone must come from the outside and, and be able to help them. The third parallel would be that adoption always comes at a cost. So uh, we can stick with, well, let's go to Galatians now. Uh, Galatians 4, that God redeems us. That word of redeems us. Uh, he, he buys us out of slavery. Uh, and Ephesians talks about he does this by his blood. Uh, so it got it cost God the, the life of his most precious son in order to redeem us out of slavery so that, in the language of Galatians 4, so that he could adopt us, adopt us as his own sons and daughters. So the same with adopting children. There are many joys in adoption. I don't want to downplay that at all. But adoption also comes with cost. Uh, there's the obvious financial cost. Uh, international adoptions, and we did them around $40,000. So that's a significant cost. Uh, time, uh, there's additional, you take on parenting, you take on additional parenting things that come uh, with children who um, are coming out of these situations with trauma and these kind of things. So there's joys, but there's costs if you choose to adopt. Um, but when sometimes people say to us, you know, why, what if you ruined your family and what if, well, isn't this going to be hard? Kind of our response was, since when did Jesus call us to like take up our couch and follow him? Like that, that's not the call, right? <laughs> We're supposed to lay down our lives and it does looks different for everyone, but Jesus calls us to do things that aren't easy. Um, and it's hard. You got to intentionally go and do it, but he, it's a call to follow him into hard things. And adoption is not always easy. So it comes at a cost. Yeah. Uh, there's more we can list, but just for time's sake, the last one, I'll, the parallel I make is that, um, that we are made heirs and given an inheritance. So biblically speaking, uh, in all of Paul's letters where he talks about adoption, every single time he talks about being an heir. So that's the future sense of adoption, that we are heirs. And, and in Romans 8 specifically, it's a, an inheritance that is so glorious that it can't even be compared to the present sufferings of the sufferings of this present time. And of course, same with Josh. This is kind of fun for us. Uh, you know, Josh is made an heir. He's in our will. He, uh, he, he is part of our... Now, we got to quickly pause here and say I'm a pastor. So the inheritance that he's getting in this life is, is not going to be that great. 
but you know uh, it's more the principle of the matter yeah it's the the principle of the matter somebody else could make this illustration a lot better than i could who has some (laughs) vast fortune that they're gonna leave to their kids but josh is truly an heir and in our in our will it actually says uh, i'll tell you a quick story here we heather and i were going to ecuador with compassion for a week and right after we adopted josh and she said well did you put josh's name in the will because it would be terrible if something happened to us and then he wasn't mentioned in the will. And so he didn't mm. get any inheritance. And I just, I said to her, you don't, we don't need to put Josh's name in the will. And she was confused by that. She said, well, how, why, why wouldn't we have to put his name in the will? So because we originally had it drafted to say that uh, payments have to be made out of our estate if we both died at the same time. Um, and then our estate is to be divided up into, I think the language is into as, as many equal shares as there are of our children. Hmm. So a lawyer would then ask, who are Barton and Heather's legal children? And our biological children could produce their birth certificates. That would prove they are our children. They could get their share of the estate. But Josh could not do that. Josh uh, does not have a birth certificate with us. Um, So, But he has another document. It's a legal document uh, that we signed in China in the government offices there on the day that we adopted him. And it's a legal document that says he is officially adopted as our son, uh, gives him his name, uh, Joshua. He's, his uh, Chinese name is Liao Yu. Um, and so we named him Joshua Liao Pri. It's a legal definition. It says he is our son. Hmm. Uh, so if Joshua were to have a lawyer come after him and say, you're not the children of Barton and Heather, you don't get a share of the estate. He could just hold up that document and be like, back off, get out of my face. I am one of their children. And I'm, I get this massive pastoral estate. I get my share in it <laughs> as well. <laughs> because oh, the point is, it doesn't it, matter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter how he became our son. The fact is, he is our son. Uh, some of our children came biologically and some came by adoption. The fact is, they are all our children and they're all heirs. And so that's just another parallel that we are heirs. So when people ask us mm. why we adopted, uh, we often say something like, um, we're Christians. We believe that even though we've sinned against God, he loved us so much that he sent Christ to rescue us and adopt us into his family. And that God's adopting love has so captured our hearts that we just wanted to show that kind of love to a child in need. So that was kind of the journey for us in adopting Josh, as well as all the, you know, the book and all these kind of things. That's amazing. And I, I know you, um, you made the dedication out to him and this, mm-hmm. I, another time you made me cry. Uh, on, you posted on social media this week, I guess you got your right. the box, big box of books and showing, um, showing him reading that dedication to him. Uh, it was just, that must've been such a special moment it was, for the two yeah. of you. Yeah. Yeah. I told him that he gets the first copy of the books when they arrived. Oh. I gave him the first copy and then he didn't know this, but I, gave, I dedicated the book to him. And uh, wrote a little inscription that said, "You are, you are chosen. You are loved. You belong." So I had him read that, and I, he, he grasps it to a point. Um, right. I, I think in the future, hopefully, he'll grasp it a little bit, a bit more. But uh, yeah, it was a special moment for us. Oh, I'm sure. I can only imagine that that will be something throughout the years that he can even look back to. Yeah. Um, as life comes, that's amazing. Well, we've talked a lot about all of this. Do you have? Um, you know, like what, what is it that you hope people will get out of this book? You did your whole, the whole journey, the doctoral thesis, which maybe we should also say that this book is not like reading a doctoral thesis. No, you've made this very, very (laughs) accessible, um, to, to everyone. So what is it that you hope will come from this work? Yeah, the doctoral dissertation you can also buy on Amazon if you need sleep aid, a door stopper. <laughs> it's like 400 pages academic writing. This is Some people that. love that. Yeah, well, for those who want to do a real deep dive, it's available on Amazon. It's called Belonging to God's Family. You can get that if you want. No, this one is a shorter book. Um, what, I, what I, I'm aiming at is, number one, to give a clear biblical teaching on adoption. But more than that, to show how adoption applies to really practical areas of our life to help readers to apply it to their lives. But even more than that, uh, all of that is just meant to try to, Lord willing, achieve the end goal, which is that as people are reading it, I'm praying that they would get so caught up in their own adoption in Christ. They would be led to worship as they read it. Their hearts would overflow with joy. Um, Mm. They would just be filled. And so 
I've had lots of pre-readers that have been that read it already. And it just warms my heart when I, I hear them saying things like it tears in their eyes or they, they just got lost in the reading and in worship of God. That's the mm -hmm. end goal. It's not to just get our doctrine straight. It's that people might uh, enjoy this relationship that they've had, that, that God has given them um, through adopting them through Christ. And then to show how this can free them in all kinds of areas of their life. So that's my prayer that people would experience that um, mm -hmm. as they're reading it. So yeah, that's the goal. Awesome. Well, this, yeah. this has been so great. Barton, thank you for taking the time to have this whole conversation with us, um, sharing about it. Anything else that you want to say before we? Yeah, thanks, Jessica. Before we if go? People want, I mean, if people can help me get the word out, it sure helps. Two things can help a lot. Uh, if you like the book, well, first, if you buy the book, but if you like <laughs> it, do a, do a social media post that just recommends it, maybe put a link to it on Amazon or something. Like that. that helps a lot. Uh, I'm nobody yeah. famous, so I got to try to get the word out there and uh, beyond my own circles. So if people can help me with that, I'd greatly appreciate it. And then mm. uh, another one would be to write a customer review on Amazon. You just go down to the, you know, go to the book page, scroll down, there's write customer review, just write one line, give it to the stars. And uh, that, that really helps with the Amazon algorithms because they, they work based upon verified purchase reviews. Um, yeah. So that, that recommends it beyond just our own little circle. So do a social media post, write a customer review. I would be so grateful if you do that. Yeah, those, those Amazon reviews, that was something I've learned that if you want to support an author, one of the best things to do is actually. So go do that. Um, thank you, Barton. This has thank been you, awesome. Thank you, Jessica. It's been fun. And, uh, you know, this is part two on the podcast. We'll, we'll find something else to have you back on another time, probably. I, I love <laughs> All right. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to go deeper into the things we talked about today, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Barton's book, Adopted by God, Discover the Life-Transforming Joy of a Neglected Truth. You can find it on Amazon, and we have a link to that in our show notes. And as always, I remind you that our team here at Fellowship Pacific is here to serve you and support you in any way we can. To find out more about how we can help and to get in contact with any of our team, visit our website at www.fedpacific.ca.